Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is not a blah list of rules of moral behavior. This is a framework of love and compassion, of hope and freedom. And in our society that worships self-care and self-indulgence and self-determination, this is truly countercultural. It's more than just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a way of living, of loving. It's a radical Jesus kind of love. And in the end, it is a love that gets noticed by him, by one another, by those that we welcome in, and even those who oppose us. Think about what he's saying, the writer of Hebrews. Don't love money. Let marriage be honored. Trust God. Love each one. Love each other. Love strangers. Love prisoners. Love the hurting. Today, that's radical. It's a radical message. First, we're told to continue in brotherly love. We looked at that portion two weeks ago. Just a synopsis, because we are to look towards one another and continue in brotherly love because what we face will either bind us together or it will tear us apart. And whatever level of pressure that you're feeling, I don't think we face persecution in our country, despite what some people say. If you want to see real persecution, uh, we can probably take you some places to see it. But I do know that the pressure is upon the church and God's people, and there are stresses and difficulties, and those kinds of things will either bind us together or they will rip us apart. So we're encouraged to love one another with a true affection, not lip service, not simple little acts, but complete and utter affection for one another. Not to devour and tear one another apart, but to love one another. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, uh, and welcome strangers, love them too. Show hospitality to those that may come across your path. In your home, in your neighborhood, at the workplace, in the school, wherever you are, welcome strangers with hospitality. God will even surprise you sometimes with unexpected blessings. Both of those instructions are clear that they demonstrate a love that gets noticed. The third challenge that we pick up on today is to remember those who are in prison. As though in prison with them, he says. That's a vivid thought. I don't know that we see it that way. 
that we are in prison with them. And then he says, and those who are mistreated, remember them because you also are in the body. You have been mistreated or may be mistreated. And it hurts when that happens. And it's something the writer confirms that they had been previously doing. Uh, This is something that these believers that the writer of Hebrews is writing to had initially been doing. We know this because Hebrews 10, 34 says this, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew what to do. They had been doing it. But they are now being encouraged all the more to do it. Maybe they were becoming faint of heart. Maybe they were giving up, giving out. Maybe there was more intense, increased pressure in ways that they hadn't expected. Maybe they had full determination to do what they had been doing, but just a little encouragement would help. Whatever it was, they're being told what you started doing, keep doing. Now, I want you to keep in mind that prisoners in the Roman world didn't, didn't have it like what prisoners do in modern day. Prisons in the, prisoners in the Roman world, they did not receive government-issued food and clothing uh, and medical care. Granted, what they receive today is probably not the best. And in many cases, it's really subpar. But if you were a prisoner in Rome and in the Roman Empire... If you didn't have family and friends come and visit you and provide for your physical needs, then you just didn't have. You went without. And you can imagine that made life very desperate and bleak and short. If you didn't have food, you're not going to live very long. While the writer is primarily speaking these important things about those imprisoned because of their testimony to Jesus... I don't think he means to exclude those that might be in prison for other reasons. And so the way we see it here, I don't know that we have anyone imprisoned in America for witnessing to Jesus. It may come there someday, but I don't think that's happening now. But I promise you it's happening in China. I promise you it's happening in Afghanistan. It's happening in Iran. It's happening in North Korea. It's happening in a lot of places around the world, and we are to remember them as though we were in prison with them. Not the fake persecution we see in our country today. I'm sorry. But that's just, because they're being mean to us is not quite the same category. We have all the more opportunity to witness of Jesus with our love and actually win people over. But there, they're imprisoned, and we are to remember them as though we are there with them. And it, it makes me think about those that do go into prisons. Our dear friend Jim Newsom, he himself was incarcerated. And he has an amazing ministry called Outward Focus, where he's in prisons many weeks of every year, ministering to inmates and doing incredible work for the kingdom. In fact, when he was in prison... God used him to reach so many people and start a healthy, vibrant church right there in the prison. So there is opportunity to do that even now. I remember going with Jim to see an inmate 
uh, at Atmore Prison in Alabama. And this was when I lived in Mobile. And this young man was about my age at the time, which at the time was about 26 or 27. And he was up for a capital murder charge. And he'd come to faith in Christ in prison. And the young man had such a heart for the Lord. And I would go and visit him at the prison and talk with him and and encourage him. And we'd be there for Bible studies. And I did this for several months. I would go to the court case when he was being tried. I brought a suit of clothes to him so he could get out of that jumpsuit so he could uh, so that he could stand there in something of more uh, decent clothing. He was convicted. He went to jail and prison. But he loved the Lord. And I have a feeling, I don't have contact with him now, that the way he was living, God had purpose for him, even in the midst of that crime. And even in the midst of the time that he would serve. You know, Jesus had something to say about visiting prisoners And the other things that really we're talking about. Matthew 25, verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, Jesus himself, will answer them and say, truly I say to you, as you did it, To one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Here's another part of that story I chose not to read. It's for all of those that thought they were going to go to heaven, but didn't do these things. And they don't get the same treatment as those who did. You can see how this kind of love, visiting prisoners, brotherly love towards one another, uh, welcoming strangers, this kind of love gets noticed. It gets noticed to those that are receiving it. It gets noticed to even those who oppose us. It also gets noticed by the king. He takes notice. But as we turn to the next verse, verse 4 and 5, we start to realize that Countercultural love not only extends outward to the stranger and to the oppressed and to the persecuted and to the prisoner, but it also guards the relationships that lie closer to home, specifically the marriage relationship and our often fraught relationship with money, which can be dangerous for some of us. Of course, a lot of people think that money and marriage or money and sex are topics that are nobody's business except our own. It's my business, not yours. But the issues surrounding these two areas can and often shipwreck the witness of the church, and it has done so throughout history. They can tear apart the loving bonds that bind the church together so right in the middle of this countercultural loving and living, the writer says, let marriage be held in honor among all. 
And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Honor marriage. Keep the marriage bed pure. Don't commit adultery or sexual immorality. How do we honor marriage? Well, first, by not dishonoring it. Marriage is dishonored when we attempt to redefine it beyond the scriptural boundaries of one man and one woman, as Genesis tells us that it is, and as Jesus himself and his teachings confirmed. Marriage is dishonored when divorce becomes so easy that it's a quick fix to a problem that you have. Marriage is dishonored when pornography sears our expectations and scars our sexual experiences. Marriage is dishonored when a couple lives as if they're married, but they haven't exchanged covenant vows. Marriage is dishonored when one or both go outside that marriage to engage in emotional or sexual experience. Because adultery, I'm firmly convinced, is not only a physical thing. It can be an emotional thing as well. And while our society is full of permissive nature, they are permitting virtually any kind of sexual experience that you want to have, just about. There are very few things off bounds anymore. There's a few, and of course, that's abhorrent at the time. You've got to wonder how the deterioration might rule over that one day too. But while our society is so permissive in so many areas, let's remember this charge to honor marriage is not any less radical today than it was in ancient times, the day that this letter was written. Historian Kyle Harper is not a Christian historian. He's read a book, he's written a book, excuse me, entitled From Shame to Sin. And he comments about the impact that Christianity had on the Roman views of sexuality. He said, in essence, the coordinated assault by Jesus' followers, the coordinated assault on the extramarital sexual economy marks one of the more consequential revolutions in the history of sex. In fact, he says that was the first sexual revolution, not towards permissiveness, but towards fidelity. It changed the world. It changed the Roman Empire. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in a year or a decade, not even in a century, but over the course of three centuries, things drastically changed. By forbidding all sex beyond the marriage bed, this new sexual ethic held by those who followed Christ came to mark the great divide between Christians and the world. The early church was a distinct uh, group of people in the Roman Empire. They stood apart, <laughs> not just because of what they said about God, not just because they loved one another and loved strangers even, but also because of the way they behaved sexually. It was a demarcation for them. Nowhere did the moral expectations of the Jesus movement stand in more stark contrast than in the areas of fidelity within marriage 
and restraint from sexual immorality. It made them stand apart. And the kind of love that they upheld in their covenant marriages was a love that got noticed. As I heard uh, Trevin Wax, who is a professor at a seminary, he said, the reason we cannot change our view of marriage and sexuality is because we would be exchanging one moral cosmology for another. In essence, we would be saying, we refuse the rule and reign of God that he gets to determine how we are to live for what man may say, anything goes. I believe the reason all of this is so important, our honoring marriage and our keeping the marriage bed pure and abstaining from sexual immorality is because it points and reflects the beautiful truth that we as the church are the bride of Christ and that Jesus, our savior, is also our bridegroom and that we are united with him. And so when we honor marriage, far from holding up repressive and outdated institutions, which most people in the world and culture today see it as, we're actually, in a sense, presenting the gospel. When we uphold a covenant biblical view, a godly view that Jesus has sanctioned of marriage to our world, in our society, we are, in essence, acting out the gospel. So we honor marriage first and foremost by upholding what it really is and by rejecting the narratives out there that would seek to castigate marriage as something less than what God himself designed. Finally, we come to the final thing in verse five. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Keep your life from the, you guys are just relieved I'm after this, over the sex part. I know what you're doing. <laughs> Everybody's holding their breath for a long time there. And then, okay, now we're money. We can breathe a little bit. Keep your life free from the love of money. The Apostle Paul echoes this same thought when he's, he is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. And he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The problem isn't that we have money or that some people have more money and other people have less money. Wealth itself is not the sin. The problem is when money and acquisition of wealth, whether you have a little or you have a lot, becomes the focal point and the obsession of all your pursuits. Because when that happens, you will never have enough. The old bumper sticker from the 90s that said, he who with the most toys wins, is really a sad document, a commentary on our world. Because acquisition of more and more and more and gathering and hoarding one to, and to oneself without the generosity 
that God has called us to, it's a death in itself. It doesn't lead to life. A love for money is like drinking salt water and thinking it's quenching your thirst. It never really does. You just have to drink more and you drink enough, it'll kill you. And so it's why Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. He's got a whole list of vanities, by the way. We don't have to crave and worship money for we have the Lord as our helper. We have the one who provides for us and he never leaves nor forsakes us. We don't have to be afraid. What can man do to us? We need not fear how our approach to money and marriage may look to a world who sees this approach as odd and strange. We, we need not fear what a life of faithfulness could potentially cost us because the same God who promises to never leave nor forsake us is the God who equips us to live such a way. It is his power at work within us that enables us to do these things of brotherly love, welcoming strangers, remembering prisoners, honoring marriage, and not loving money. A kind of love that gets noticed. The Lord calls us as his followers to pursue and guard brotherly love. It's essential that we do so. One of the best things about the weekend with these men was the way they showed love towards one another and harassed one another. But that's my love language, so I'm good with that. A little fun-loving trash talk never hurt anybody, as long as you don't go over the line, I guess. I'm not athletically equipped, so I, all I can do is trash talk. <laughs> Can't back it up, but... Uh, Watching them love one another, watching them care about one another, be willing to go to the mats with one another, pray and say to, I'm with you, or say to someone, you need to get accountable to somebody. I'll walk with you in this, but you can't just be out there alone, challenging, strengthening, continuing in brotherly love. That's what we're called to do. He also roots all of this in a profoundly self-sacrificial, counter-cultural way of doing life. And that is what he has called us to. How are we doing at continuing in this brotherly love? How are you doing? How common is it for you to show hospitality to strangers? When was the last time you opened up your house, shared a meal with somebody you don't know that well, invited them to your table, broke bread with them, and participated in koinonia that comes from the Holy Spirit. Are you caring for those who are oppressed? Even those in prison for their faith? Are you remembering them as though you yourself were in prison with them? And do we even think about them or pray for them or care for them or send support to help them? Are we upholding and honoring marriage as a community? Are you doing it in your home? Do your children look at your marriage and think, my parents honor their marriage? Do they see you walking the walk 
Or do they only hear you talking the talk? Are our marriages upheld? Are they honored or are we dishonoring them? Do we treat them as just optional? Is the way we love and respect one another, the way we're submitted to one another, the way we adhere to scripture and the way we live our lives, the way we do our marriage, the way we raise our kids, is it honoring to the Lord? Are we plagued with all sorts of other thoughts, sexual impurity, pornography, or vice that distorts God's perfect gift given to us? Are we enslaved by our love for money? How generous are we? How faithful are we in tithing? How much do we give to something else other than our own thing? Do we reveal how much we trust God or how much we don't trust God by how we write our checks or pay our credit card bill? We not only have these commands to live by, which helps us to walk in a path of righteousness, but we also have a charge to love one another and others in such a way that that love gets noticed. It's truly countercultural to all that is out there, but it testifies to the truth that God has made us into a new creation and that we are to live not under the law of sin and death, but under his grace. And that while the world is busy self-promoting and self-caring and self-determining, we are dying to ourselves and picking up our cross and following him. And in that following, we find abundant life, more than we could ever ask or think. And that anyone, everyone, that might witness this kind of love, that might see it in our actions, that might understand it better because of our marriage, that might have experienced it because we invited them to our table, that anyone who witnesses this kind of love, they would know they too are invited to come home, to come into the love of God that changes everything. I pray that these things will be true of our spiritual family. Amen. If you're new here this morning, we have a bit of a tradition where my lovely wife comes and, and shares with us a few moments uh, just what God has put on her heart or any scripture or thought that God has. And then we pray for you. And this morning, we want to do just that. So this is Donna. I think that if we're honest, there's at least one part of these instructions from brotherly love all the way down to don't waste love on things that we can say God pricked our heart about, that we're not living to the full one or more of those instructions. But the awesome thing is that he ended it with God will help you. <laughs> it, it's not a list of tasks that's humanly possible. That's right. We're not good at any of this. That's right. But God will help us. And so my prayer for us actually comes right out of Hebrew 13 today. Mm. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with 
everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing to him through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Yes. Father, we are overwhelmed by your gift of Jesus, Mm. the only one who makes any of these things possible. But we don't want to latch a hold of the gift and ignore any moment of repentance, of agreeing with you about the condition of our hearts, of our relationships. Your kingdom is being brought to bear Mm. And you don't do it on our backs like an earthly king. You do it in our hearts. Yes, Lord, you do. And we want to, um, we want to bow to that. We want to agree with you, and we want to commit to an obedience that flows from our love for you. So, Father, cause your loves to bloom in our hearts. Yes. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's conviction. May the places you've touched in our hearts today that are not pleasing to you, that we would turn aside from those things, that we would lean into the Holy Spirit's mission and ministry, and we would receive supernatural help to be better than we are, yes, Lord. to love more deeply to love more sacrificially, that we would love God's family, that we would love the outsider, that we would identify with the sinner, that we would keep our covenants, that we would not waste your love Mm. on things. That's right. And that we would be constantly reminded that we have a helper. Yes, Lord. You have not left us alone or orphaned, but you have come with everything we need to live lives that are pleasing to you yes. and that will extend the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus. So here's what I want us to do. Let's all, in the best way that we can, pray. Pray in the Spirit. Pray out loud, pray in your heart, and ask the Lord what he is speaking to you right now. Let's just take a few moments right now and just pray. Teach us to pray, Lord, to seek your face, to find what you're saying, to hear your voice, to see you more fully. What are you speaking to us right now, Lord, to us individually? to us as a married couple, to us as a family, to us, to us as a single person, to any of us, what are you saying, Lord, in Jesus' name? Now, Lord, those things that your spirit, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, those areas in our life, deficiencies, lacks, needs, 
broken places, hurt, anxiety, fear, <coughs> infirmity, those things that hold us back. We ask that your Holy Spirit will penetrate our hearts and move upon us in Jesus' name. Let freedom come, Lord, in the areas where we've been in bondage. Let healing come in the areas we've been broken. Let sight come to the areas that we've been blind. Let us walk fully in faith that all the fullness of God would dwell within us in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for everyone sitting here, those that are eagerly expecting and those that are reluctant even now. May your Holy Spirit have his way among us in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.